We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Work, family, friends, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit the reset button. That's when you reach for an ice-cold Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. Listen, there's a lot going on in Green Bay right now, and I feel like we could all use a moment to chill with a Coors Light. See, Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's literally made to chill. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. Perfect for a moment to unwind. Coors Light is what I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in their all-new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado, and as always, celebrate. Twenty minutes a day, three hundred sixty-five days a year. This is the Pack a Day Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome into episode 355 of the Pack-A-Day podcast. I am your host, Andy Herman. Of course, I am a writer for Cheesehead TV. You can always follow me on Twitter, at Sports. Before we get started with our main topic today, I wanted to take a second to tell you about Ticket King. I saw our good friend Dusty Evely post a little bit earlier this week that he's thinking about getting some late season Packer tickets, and I wanted to take the time to remind Dusty, as well as all of you, that if you are looking for Packer tickets this season, whether it's preseason, regular season, home games, road games, playoffs, or obviously eventually when the Packers reach the Super Bowl and you need tickets... Ticket King's got you covered. Make sure to go to theticketking.com, use promo code PACKADAY, no dashes, no spaces, that's promo code PACKADAY, and get your 10% off of your Packer tickets. Make sure to go out and do it today. Dusty, go out, get your late season Packer tickets, use the Ticket King, you won't be disappointed. Thanks to Ticket King for being our sponsor for today's episode and all of our episodes here at Packaday. Today's topic is one that most people actually don't want to talk about. It's the collective bargaining agreement. And uh, for Packer fans, for football fans, when we think of the collective bargaining agreement, we think of potential lockouts and work stoppages and a news cycle that is focused entirely upon, you know, what owners and agents and lawyers are going to be doing in the offseason. And that's the last thing that any Packer fan or any sports fan or football fan wants to be thinking about. They want to be thinking about, you know, their potential draft picks and what 
what's coming up in the season and watching games and all of the things that come with a 365 day a year normal NFL news cycle. But the one thing that can potentially get in the way of that is the collective bargaining agreement about once every 10 years. And we're about to reach that point once again. And that's why it's so important to discuss this. So let's start by taking a quick recap of what's currently going on with the CBA. First of all, the players and owners last agreed to a new collective bargaining agreement back in 2011 that will end at the end of the 2020 season. Uh, So as things stand right now, football is set to continue as normal this season. Next year's offseason could get a little bit wonky if all things stay equal. You don't have June 1st cuts and some things of that nature. I'm not going to break down a ton of that today because hopefully it doesn't get to that point, but uh, that could be a little bit of an interesting situation to gauge and keep an eye on coming up next offseason if things don't get resolved. Next football season would be played as normal. And then the off season after that is where you could potentially get into the work stoppages and weird labor deals and some things like that. So that's where we stand right now. We still have two you know, complete football seasons ahead of us before we even have to worry about anything. Um, and that the other thing really to note here is that the last CBA was widely considered to be a massive win for the owners as they were able to get revenue sharing basically from a 50-50 player and owner split to basically a 53-47 split in favor of the owners. The owners were also able to get some additional franchise and transition tags approved. The rookie wage scale was decreased. So through and through, it was considered to be a major win for ownership. So those are kind of your two main things that you need to kind of keep in the back of your mind as we discuss this topic today. But I think the the question that really begs asking is is why is this a topic right here and right now? Because you know usually the collective bargaining agreement isn't something that really gets talked about until the off season when it's up and you start having these negotiations. But the reason that this is a topic today is twofold. One, uh, the first major piece of news was you know reported by Pro Football Talk, um, and they reported it uh, about a week or two ago that the NFL and the Players Association actually want to get together and work on an agreement and get an agreement in place before this season even kicks off. And both sides actually seem very amicable to making a deal work and getting a deal done before the 2019 season even starts. So that's a a really huge piece of information that both sides are already talking, that they're amicable to making this agreement work already. And Roger Goodell even confirmed this report. So talks are ongoing. They've already met. And what a win it would be for fans if they would actually get this done well well ahead of time and could sign a new collective bargaining agreement before, you know, things with next year's offseason get weird from a salary cap structure standpoint. And before we even have to talk about lockouts or potential work stoppages or shortened seasons or anything of that nature, it would be a huge win for fans everywhere if this could get done so early in the process. And then the other thing that came out recently is that the NFL is once again looking to move to an 18-game schedule. And the the caveat that they put next to this, and I I think this is really a a non-news story. This is more of a news drop just to see, I think, how how people would respond to it. But the caveat would be that players would be limited to a 16-game season. Now, let's talk about part one first, and I'll get to, to more of that 18-game schedule in just a moment. But the, the huge news here is, is part one. Uh, the fact that they are really looking at getting a deal done prior to 2021, uh, and, and really even prior to 2019, uh, before the season starts, I think that that's a tremendous, tremendous uh, success story 
in and of itself that the sides are already talking. Even even just about six months ago, there was an article uh, from Richard Sherman, who is on the Players Association, and he's talking about how there's going to be a lockout. Uh, the the uh, the Players Association had already sent memos uh, to the players to let them know to plan for a work stoppage in 2021. So there were already some gloomy signs, even as as little back as about th- about four to six months ago. So the fact that all of a sudden sides are talking and things seem to be going well, it, it guarantees us nothing. It doesn't mean that you know maybe that this won't go on for a couple of years and it ends up being a real big mess. Uh, but at least at this point, this is a very very positive sign. And then of course that second part, that 18 game schedule, with the caveat that you know players would be limited to 16 games. Now this is obviously something that wasn't you know really thought out very well at all. And I think the first thing that you know people always jump to is the quarterback, right? So I don't think most teams want to see their team playing two regular season games that matter for playoff contention in which their star quarterback or star any player, whether that's Von Miller or Khalil Mack or Aaron Rodgers or Tom Brady, insert whatever superstar that you want into that equation. I don't think they want a game that matters that doesn't have those players in it. So I think that's issue number one, but even take this just a small step further. And I saw this posted on Twitter, but obviously the NFL didn't think about kickers or punters or long snappers because you're not going into a season with two long snappers on your roster and going into two games without a long snapper would be a really ridiculous situation. Same thing with a kicker, same thing with a punter. So uh, it would be a logistical nightmare. There'd be some unique strategy that could potentially be involved in this. And, you know, the most creative teams are probably going to be the ones that would be most advantageous. But think about this as well. And actually, one of my good friends, uh, James Dujinsky, brought this up. But let's say that teams all of a sudden feel like the Patriots, for example, are too good. And they don't want to waste one of their games with their superstar players uh, against the Patriots. So they bench their their best players against the Patriots as one of their games where their starters and superstars don't have to play so that they can save them for maybe a, a more winnable game. Well, guess what happens to the Patriots? All of a sudden, all the teams in the league start benching their good you know, players against the Patriots. The Patriots could end up with a very simple path to 18-0 because teams don't want to waste their, their players in a game against a, a team that they might lose even with their best players in it. So uh, there's a lot of logistical issues that you would run into with potentially limiting players to 16 games per year in an 18-game season. Now let's let's tweak this a little bit. So let's say they, they wanted to do this. My, my recommendation, and this is not a perfect solution, and I'm not recommending this overall. I don't think this is a good idea. But if they wanted to do something like this, what I would recommend would be to do, say, 1,200 snaps per season instead of 16 games. So if you look at it last year, only eight players played over 1,200 snaps. Now, if you increase the season by two games, that's, of course, going to go up a little bit. But I think 1,200 snaps would be a good cutoff point to say that's the limit that every player can play in a 18-game season. If you break that down, that would be approximately about 67 snaps per game in an 18-game season, and I think that's fairly reasonable. You know, most games are about 70 to 75 snaps. You can probably get a few garbage time snaps. Most players are going to miss a game here or there uh, due to injury. Um, You can probably bench some players or star players in in a game where uh, you're down 35 to nothing or up 35 to nothing. So I think that's a very reasonable number even in an 18-game season. Now, there would still be some logistical nightmares that you would need to work out. Let's say, for example, the Packers and the Vikings are playing in in week 19. That's what it would be, right? You have an 18 game season and a bye week, so this would be week 19. And the NFL or the NFC North Division Championship is on the line. 
And all of a sudden, Aaron Rodgers going into that game is at 1,180 snaps. Well, now you're going into a game with the championship on the line and Aaron Rodgers is limited to 20 snaps within that game. You know, that that's not what you want. You don't want games that are coming down to the finish at the end of the season and your stars can't play because they've reached a, a, a snap limit, right? Same thing would be uh, with a game limit. There would be a lot of logistics that you'd have to work out there. You'd also have to take into consideration what's a snap, right? So if uh, David Bakhtiari jumps and it's a false start penalty before the play even starts and there's no snap on the play, is that a snap? Is that considered a play that would go towards your total snap count? And, you know, you could even come up with a situation where let's say Aaron Rodgers does have 10 snaps left in the season and it's first and goal from the one yard line. Could the defense just jump off sides 10 plays in a row uh, so that it's half the distance to the goal and there's no yardage gained? And all of a sudden, you know, Aaron Rodgers is out of his 10 snaps and he's out the rest of the game. So uh, my point being here is whether it's 16 games or 1,200 snaps or anything of that nature, there's probably not a perfect silver bullet that would solve this issue uh, with an 18-game season. And if if they want to limit that in some way, I think they're going to have a really tough time determining just exactly how they want to limit it and how they would go about doing that so that there's not some real competitive disadvantages or some ways that teams could take advantage of that in some way, shape, or form. Uh, so let's get to a little bit more of uh, of some of the major issues that are surrounding this year's CBA and some of the things that we'll have to kind of keep an eye out for as this process goes along a little bit more. The biggest thing this is going to shock you is money. Uh, of course, we just talked about it. You know, two CBAs ago, uh, the split was really 50 50 for players and owners. Uh, this past CBA it went to about 53% for owners. They take 53% of the profits, players get 47%. And now, we're, of course, the NFL is making more revenue than ever before. They've got new TV deals. So, this is bound to be a hot button topic like it is every single time. So, uh, I think the the fact that the, the owners were kind of uh, given a huge win in this last CBA. You know the players are going to want to come out and try to get more uh, money out of that pot back. And I think the owners are actually in a fairly decent situation where they should be okay with that. They just got a 53-47 split. There's more money than ever before. Money's always tricky. It's always the the number one A trickiest part of this entire process. And that's why it's the one A topic that's going to be discussed. But uh, I think the players are probably right to ask for a little bit more here. And I think the owners should be willing to give that in this situation because because it really benefits both sides. And they just got 10 years where they were kind of the, the beneficiary of a really good CBA. So they should be willing to give give back at least a little bit to the players, maybe make it 51-49 for the owners. That should still be a win for the owners. That's a major takeaway for the players that they're getting 2% more than what they were for the last CBA. So they actually should have some leeway to work on both sides there. And I'm hopeful that that will, won't be quite as much of a sticking point as maybe it was in the past. Uh, but that's obviously always the one that's going to have to be, you know, kept in an eye is always going to have to be kept on that for sure. The next one is that 18 game regular season. And if you think of it this way, there's only two ways for the NFL really to expand revenue at this point. They have really saturated their audience at this point in the United States for how much football is being played. So there's only two avenues left and that's expanding outward and going into different areas, which is why they're doing so many neutral site games and trying to go to London and Mexico City and playing as many places as they can so that they can expand uh, the game globally and gain more revenue that way. And then of course, the other is by having more games. The more games that you have, 
have, the more uh, TV games that you can have, uh, you know, rights to that you can sell. So that's really the way to make money. So without more games uh, and without more fans worldwide, there's no real more, you know, more way to make revenue. You you can charge some more for tickets. You can try to get a little bit more out of the cable companies, but uh, you know, those are, are kind of saturated markets at this point. So this is one of the only two ways they have left to expand, which makes sense is, you know, why they're trying to do that. Of of course, they're going to push the envelope and try to get more games. So that that's going to be, you know, the, the real big talking point for that 18 game season that the, the owners are going to want. Of course, the other big talking point for players and just in the NFL in general is player safety and, and adding, you know, two games or however many games you want to add to a season is certainly not something that potentially helps player safety and player health and all of those sorts of things. So that's definitely going to be a, a big point of contention and something that's going to be a little bit of a push pull, push pull between both sides. And I'll get more into that in just a moment as well. Uh, some of the other, you know, quick points that that they seem to be discussing is playoff format. The NFL wants to go from 12 teams to 14 teams. Guess why? That would add two additional playoff games to the playoff schedule. Huge revenue increase there because they get a massive audience for two additional playoff games. You know, it really doesn't hurt the competitive balance too much. In fact, it gives more of a you know competitive advantage to the team that finishes best in their conference. So uh, this could be one that definitely makes sense. I'm not a huge fan of it, but I, you know, I'm not necessarily against it either. Um, it would give you know more teams the opportunity to be in the playoffs every year. So uh, that's going to be one to keep an eye on. And playoff seeding as well is another one that uh, they've discussed a little bit. Uh, the Players Association actually wants it to be, uh, you know, seated differently so that if an 8-8 eight and eight team uh, finishes on top of their division, they don't end up with a home game, you know, playing an 11-5 or 12-4 or four wild card team where that 12-4 and four team is at the disadvantage because they have to go on the road to play at the 8-8 eight and eight team. So playoff seating uh, might be a, a discussion point here. Uh, marijuana testing, guaranteed contracts, Roger Goodell's role in player discipline, healthcare, especially for players once they're out of the NFL, and the franchise tag. Those are really the hot button topics that you're going to hear a lot about with the upcoming CBA. One thing that Packer fans should be insanely excited about that there's been no talk of, at least that I have seen so far, is that there has been no discussion of a change in major salary cap structure or in revenue sharing. And my my point being here is that whenever you hear CBA as a Packer fan, the one A thing that you should really listen for is if teams like the Cowboys and the, the LA teams and the Giants uh, and the Jets and teams like that want to do away maybe with some of the revenue sharing, or if they want to make it so that there's no salary cap so that teams can spend as much as they want. The great thing about the NFL in general is that all teams are on the same playing field. They're on an equal level. Theoretically, they can all spend the same amount. There's no going over the salary cap, and it really helps that competitive balance within the course of the NFL. And a team like the Green Bay Packers benefits massively from that revenue sharing, as well as, you know, from that competitive balance, making it so that, you know, the Cowboys can't go out and spend, you know, $300 million in, in uh, salary while the Packers are limited to $120 million or something like that. 
That's how you end up with unequal playing field in baseball um, and and a little bit in basketball as well. So uh, that is not something that's been up for discussion at this point. Nothing that I've seen about that. And anytime you hear CBA, that uh, again, as a Packer fan and to me as a football fan in general, that should always be a huge thing that is kind of a red flag and a siren that should go off. If you start hearing Jerry Jones talk about some things like that, if you start hearing you know the Redskins and those type of teams talk about wanting to abolish the salary cap or or some of that revenue sharing that should put off a huge, huge warning sign. Uh, And uh, again, that has not been the case so far. So that is a huge win for the Packers and the fans. And like I said, fans of the NFL in general, in my opinion. So that brings me to my final topic for today. And that's how my ideal CBA would look. So I want to go over just some of these hot button topics. Uh, I've got about 10 to 12 of them that I think are really the the key topics and, and where I would like to see the NFL go over the course of the next 10 seasons. Usually, you know, the CBAs are signed for about 10 years and uh, that, that, that's a really big chunk of time. And uh, it's really going to potentially change the course of the NFL over that time period as well. So here's my ideal situation for how the next CBA would go. The first one I t- want to talk about is that huge one, and that's how long the season should be. And if you've been following me for a long time, there may be a handful of you that already know my stance on this. I've actually put it out there on a variety of platforms. In fact, it was one of the very first articles that I wrote for Titletown Sound Off back in the day when I was writing for them. Um, I've also put it out there on Twitter before, but my ideal scheduling situation would be this it would be a 17 game schedule. Um, and you would eliminate two preseason games. So you're getting rid of two preseason games. You're adding one regular season game. You're also adding a bye week. That regular season game would be an AFC-NFC rivalry game that you would play every single year at a neutral site. So it would not be played at the home or away team. It would be played at a neutral site. So think of Packers-Steelers every year. That would be your rivalry game, maybe played in Canton, Ohio, or played in Canada, or played in Mexico City or London, something of that nature. Or uh, maybe you know Bills-Packers, two small town teams that would play at a neutral site location. Think about Giants-Jets played uh, with a 50 split uh, at the game that would be played at the Meadowlands in the same stadium that they share. The two LA teams playing in LA against each other every year. So uh, an AFC-NFC rivalry game that you would play every single year at a neutral location. Uh, that's how I would make it so that one team doesn't have an advantage from uh, you know having more home games or away games with a 17-game schedule. And then uh, I think the the other thing that I would really uh, you know say here is that I would make it so that there would be no uh, Sunday games before Thursday night games. So with an additional bye week, you're getting two bye weeks in in the course of a season. And how I would eliminate that you know Sunday to Thursday game is that every time you play a Thursday night game, one of your bye weeks is going to be before that, so you don't have that quick four-day turnaround, which really does a number on players' bodies. So long story short, 17-game schedule, uh, eliminate two preseason games, add one regular season game and one bye week, add an NFC-AFC rivalry game that's played every year at a neutral site. That also, by the way, gets rid of the need for needing uh, a team to play a one of their home games in London or Mexico City or at these neutral sites. So now you, uh, you have 16 neutral site games throughout the course of a season that you can play all across the globe that would not affect anyone's home or away schedule in any way, shape, or form. So I think that's a win as well. And and here's you know the the pros and cons that you might say. Well, from the NFL side, you might say, well, they don't want to give up two preseason games, a home and away, and not make that up with another home game, uh, you know, during the season 
However, my, my counter to that would be you're going to get a ton more revenue from TV rights by adding two additional weeks to the season. That bye week adds a week to the season because you're going to be able to split games up a little bit more. And then you're also getting that additional uh, gate from a neutral site game. And oh, by the way, over the course of the last three to four years, what teams have done is they, they've lowered preseason prices and raised regular season prices so that they get the same amount of revenue from tickets, but a lower you know, a lower cost from preseason games, which means that if they eliminate one of their home preseason games, for example, they're actually not going to lose a ton of money, especially those teams that maybe aren't selling out their stadium in the preseason or aren't getting those season ticket holders that are purchasing those tickets. They're not going to lose much money at all. And they're going to easily make that up by a neutral site game where they're going to split the gate with the opposite team. It's going to be a sellout in most cases. Um, and then, you know, you're, you know, for a, a Packer game, of course, they're going to travel really, really well. So, you know, you're going to get good ticket sales off of that game. Um, and, and most games I think would be, and if you're strategic with it, I think you could easily fill 16 games to capacity. Like I said, if, you, if you're scheduling them in a smart area between two teams. Uh, so I think that it's a win all the way around from a player standpoint, you might say, you know, yeah, I'm eliminating two preseason games, but maybe I'm Aaron Rodgers and I might've only played 15 snaps in that game anyway. Whereas in a regular season game, I'm probably going to play closer to 70, 75 snaps. So that that's not a huge win for me. Well, maybe not, but that Thursday, that, that Sunday to Thursday, you know, game where your body's a wreck, you're not going to have to do that anymore. You get a full additional week off during the season that you didn't have, you know, previously. So I, I think there's enough takeaways there. And really that argument is, is only for the top, what, 10% of players that maybe in the course of two preseason games wouldn't play that much and would in a regular season game. You know, for most players in two preseason games, they're going to play approximately 50 snaps between the two or more. And in a regular season game, uh, the non-stars are probably playing 50 snaps or less anyway. So the majority of players are going to play the exact same amount of snaps by eliminating two preseason games and adding one regular season game. And I just think it's a win all the way around. You increase your global presence, you get additional TV rights, which by the way, that revenue now that it's hopefully closer to maybe 50-50 for players and owners you're making more you know revenue as a player and making more revenue as an owner i just think there's a lot of wins here and getting rid of two preseason games is low hanging fruit adding an additional bye week is low hanging fruit i think the big you know the big step there is adding that one regular season game and i think it just makes sense all the way around especially if if you know as players that it's going to be you know 10 years of this they're not going to be able to add any more additional games um, uh, you know, that that's not going to be a point of discussion. And really, this is your chance probably to cement that in because the owners won't have much of a bargaining chip by eliminating preseason games in the future. So if you can eliminate two preseason games, add only one regular season game and get an additional bye week with additional money out of it, I think now is the time to strike on that. And I think that will probably, you know, commit you for about the next 30, maybe more years to a 17 game schedule. And I think that would make sense for all parties. Next up on the list is increased practice time. And this is, of course, something that players are not going to like at all. But I think you can do it in a smart way that is a win for, for everyone all the way around. So what I would say is that first and foremost, you can't have additional padded practices. I think they've you know got as many padded practices as needed. I don't think those should be added. But I think you need to sell this as a win for the players too. Because if you go back to the days when Mike McCarthy was able to have his quarterback camps and uh, you, know, you had some of that time to do additional practices with your players... 
that was really a huge win for the players and a huge win for the game as a whole. Uh, You saw quarterbacks like Aaron Rodgers that were able to develop out of systems like that. And now with the limited practice time in CBAs, those type of things have gone away. And you see teams having to pick players out of college who are ready to play right away because they don't have the practice time to develop players throughout the course of a season or before the season starts. So how I would propose you do this is you don't make any more additional mandatory practices. You do not make any more additional padded practices, but you make it so that teams can have more you know, non-mandatory practices that they hold at their facilities that gives teams additional time to work with players who want to develop, who want to be there, and who want to uh, really take advantage of those practices and the off-season programs that teams can offer. What this also does is it allows teams to tie some of the contracts into attending these practices. So potentially, theoretically, players could make more money by having bonuses tied to them attending these practices. So it would be something that would be a potential win-win for players and for uh, the teams where you know players would get paid more for attending these practices, but it would be up to the player if they actually wanted to attend them or not. And I think that would be a huge win for the game in and of itself. Let's say you take a you know uh, quarterbacks like Deshaun Kaiser and Tim Boyle. Let's say that you're able to, as a quarterback's coach or an offensive coordinator, to have more practices with maybe some of the younger players uh, that are willing to come in during the offseason and have those practices to develop their skills. And you develop quarterbacks that can play in this league because of those programs. I just think that's a massive, massive win for the league. And I think that that's something that definitely needs to get considered going forward. Next up is better revenue split for players. Uh, we talked about this already. The the owners had the you know 50-50. They got it 53-47 in their favor. I think that needs to be evened out a little bit more, maybe 49-51, uh, maybe still in favor of the owners. I would love a 50-50 split. I think that makes the most sense, but I think there's good leeway there, and uh, I think the, uh, the owners need to acquiesce a little bit and uh, make sure that the players are getting their fair share of the pot because, of course, they're the ones playing out on the field. Next up is larger rosters, and this has been a little bit of a point so far. Uh, you know, teams right now are at a 53-man roster. They are, you know, can activate 46 on game day. I would like to see this bumped up to at least a 55-man roster. I don't have a real perfect number uh, in mind. If you want to go up to 58 or 60, I'm okay with that. I think 55 makes sense. And I would like to see active rosters moved up to 50 players per game day. I think that could help, uh, you know, players maybe playing a few less snaps per game, which I think is a good thing overall. So I don't want it to get too specialized. I think if you all of a sudden with, you know, end up with 55, you know, players or more active on game day, uh, you could end up with a a ton of specialized players, which I don't think is necessarily good for the game. Uh, But I do think a a 55-man active roster with 50 people active on game day seems to make a ton of sense. What I do think should happen is I think that suspended players should count against your active roster. So you're increasing roster sizes, but if you're the team that's going to sign a bunch of players who are going to get suspended throughout the course of the year, those suspended players are going to count against your active roster. So you have to think about signing a Kareem Hunt. You know, if he gets an eight game suspension, you're going to have to go into the season with a 54 man roster instead of a 55 because you're signing a player who is suspended. You know, and I'm going to give you an example here. This is kind of a loophole sometimes for teams where they're able to hold on to players during cutdown time because they have a suspended player. Let's take the Vikings, for example. 
Holton Hill, their cornerback. It was he was an undrafted free agent uh, last year. He actually put a really nice season together. Uh, he is set to be someone who is actually going to compete for playing time potentially, and is also somebody who is you know set to make their 53-man roster going into this year. However, he is actually set to be suspended for the first four games of the season. So when the Vikings set their 53-man roster, they can put him on the suspend list. They actually get to keep 53 of their players, knowing full well that probably during the first four weeks of the season, somebody is either going to suck it up to the point where they deserve to be cut, or they're probably going to have you know more likely somebody that's going to get hurt and have to go on IR. And then once his suspension's over, they pull him up and they never really lost anyone in the process. They really kind of got to keep 54 of their top players through the first four weeks. Now, I'm not saying that they wouldn't just prefer to have Holton Hill on the roster and and keep him active from game one. I'm not saying that they have a benefit because he's suspended, because clearly if you have a guy that's, you know, worth keeping on your 53-man roster, you'd prefer you can just play him. But in a way, it gives the team an advantage where they get to keep 54 of their best players instead of 53. And I also think it should make you question just how many of these players who get in trouble with the league or get in trouble with the law that you want to keep on your roster. Listen, if you want to sign guys like Kareem Hunt and Martavis Bryant and, uh, you know, whoever else you want to name that, you know, kind of gets suspended more often than not, that's fine, but you're going to have to put up with it and it play with less players on a week-by-week basis because you're wanting to sign these guys. So when they're suspended, they count against your active roster and you're at a disadvantage against other teams because you have those players on your team. So that is a change that I would like to see get made. Uh, Next up is limiting Roger Goodell's power. And a, a couple things here. I think first and foremost, you have to have more of a if this, then that. So take baseball for a moment. If you get caught with performance enhancing drugs, there is a certain game suspension that you get your first time. There is a certain game suspension you get your second time. And then I think the third time you're out of the league, you're banned for life. I love the fact that it is set in stone. You can appeal, you can appeal the process, but the suspension is basically set in stone. If this, then that. And I think the NFL needs to do a better job of making it so that if you do this, if you have a domestic abuse uh, that you are found guilty of, then this is the amount of games that you are suspended for. There should be less gray area there, and they really need to put better processes, policies, and procedures in place so that if a player does X, they know what the repercussions are and that it's not a guessing game. And they also need to do a better job of regulating it so that Ray Rice who does something terrible doesn't get two games, whereas a guy who deflates a football gets more games. Like they just have to really figure out the the logistics of that so that, that the league doesn't look horrible because the guy that deflated a football maybe gets more games than a guy who punched his girlfriend. It's not a good look. It's not good optics. And they have to fix that. And then I think you also have to do a better job of making it a panel. So uh, if if a, there is a gray area or if a, a, a you know, decision needs to be made, it's not just Roger Goodell's decision. It is somebody from the league. It is somebody from the Players Association. And it is somebody that uh, maybe an attorney or somebody that is a nonpartisan member of that panel uh, who has maybe a, a deciding vote on, on exactly what gets done. So I, I think they've got to figure out something there because Roger Goodell should not have carte blanche. Uh, to give out punishments how he sees fit. And they're going to have to scale that back a little bit. And I think that that's something that definitely needs to be done with this next CBA. 
Next one is substance abuse and specifically marijuana use. And I think this is just a, a hot button topic overall. And I think it's something that they have to figure out, especially with it being legal in some areas, especially with a prescription. There is a lot of gray area here and there is a lot of things that they're need, you know, going to need to consider. Um, this is a little bit of a political topic and this is not a political podcast. This is a Packers podcast. So I'm not going to touch base on this one too much, but uh, I do think that they just need to figure out better logistics for how they regulate it and, and how they want to punish it or if they want to punish it. Again, not, not, not necessarily saying one way or the other here, but they need to do a better job of figuring that out. So there's less gray area and, and maybe some potential more lenience here, however you want to do it, but they need to figure that out in the next CBA. The next one is expanding post-career healthcare and increased healthcare overall. This should be a no-brainer. These players are putting their their livelihoods on the line. We have all seen the players who struggle walking, struggle remembering things. Uh, you know, having access to healthcare post-career is something that should be of the utmost importance for these players. Uh, so I think that's definitely something that needs to get taken a look at. Um, I would also add to this. And maybe this is more of a a competition committee issue. I'm not exactly sure, but I would love the addition of a concussion injury list or a concussion IR. So the NFL is limited right now by, you know, IR and return from IR, and you only get so many return from IR designations and things like that. That whole process needs to be looked at and revamped, first of all. But anyone with a concussion should immediately be able to be placed on injured reserve and pulled back as soon as a nonpartisan neurologist clears them and says their concussion is no longer an issue. And here's why I say that. I think players would be less likely to maybe say that they don't have a concussion when they have one if this existed. And I think teams would be less likely to pressure players to come back when they have a concussion if they had something like this. So if they could immediately place a player on IR when they're given a concussion until they are cleared from those concussion symptoms, in that situation, bring them back. If it is done by a nonpartisan neurologist that's making that determination, then in that case, a team cannot take advantage of that. They can't just put a player on IR and bring them back because it's advantageous to the team. They have to have a legitimate concussion. And as soon as those symptoms are clear and they're cleared to play football, you immediately have to take them off of IR within a 24-hour period or something like that uh, so that the team can't take advantage of that rule. The whole IR process and that so that you can't put players on IR and bring them back is set up so that there's not a, a competitive advantage for one team where they could put a bunch of players on IR and then bring them back later in the year. And it's really kind of like stashing players. But with concussions, that competitive balance should not be in question. Put it in the hands of an independent neurologist, make them the decision makers, take it out of the team's hand, but it gives the player and the team a benefit so that they don't have to put this player on an active roster when he has a concussion or they don't have to end his season prematurely. He might have a concussion that's going to concussion that's going to last 4 weeks. Well, a team shouldn't have to put that player on IR because they can't play him for 4 weeks. So, I think that is a a huge uh, win for both the player and the league if they could have a IR for players who have concussions. The next one is that they need to make the rookie and offset language and contracts uniform throughout the league. That would end Roquan Smith holdout issues from a season ago with the Bears. Uh, there's always the talk of offset language and things of that nature and how much guaranteed they would get if they go on IR. They just need to clear all that up, make it a unified rule so that you don't end up with these rookies uh, having you know, uh, you know, know, holdouts throughout the, the course of the offseason. That doesn't do anyone any favors, so make it uniform and make it so that we don't have rookies holding out uh, before rookie minicamp and things of that nature. 
Next one, raise the spending floor. This one should be really easy as well. There should be a, a, a minimum that teams have to spend throughout the course of a season. It's set right now. It needs to be raised up a little bit. I'm not going to get into the huge minutia here, but uh, they need to raise the spending floor so that the players are getting paid what they're supposed to get paid in a given season. This is something that's really easy for teams. Even bad teams that aren't competing this year can front load contracts uh, so that they can pay uh, their best players now so that they pay them less in the future if they want to do it. So there's a lot of ways to get around this. Uh, and I, I just think it's a, an important topic so that the players are getting all the money that they can in a given CBA. They also need to abolish the franchise tag. So uh, I think the big thing here is that t- players are really getting the short end of the stick when they are getting a franchise tag placed on them. So they are not able to get the max amount of money over the max amount of years by, you know, by just signing a one-year franchise tag. And listen, it's not the worst deal in, in the world, right? You're getting a top five salary in one season and then it continues to go up and, and teams are putting in a little bit of a bind after that. And I also get the argument from the league and from teams saying, hey, you know what? If we put a ton of time, effort, and energy into a player over four years and develop them or however many years they've been on the team, you know, we want to be able to put the franchise tag on them so that they stay with us. We get that return on investment for, you know, spending all that time and developing the player and keeping them with that franchise. And, um, you know, that allows, you know, if you ever needed to, to keep Aaron Rodgers in situations and things like that. And, And I get that. And I think there's a value there. But what I would say is abolish the franchise tag and add an additional transition tag. So what that would do is it would still allow players to get the best possible deal that they can throughout the league, and it still allows the team that they're on right now to match. Now, I think the way you can do that is by putting some rules uh, across the board for how teams can sign a player when they're on the transition tag. Because what you could do, let's say you're a team like the Saints that's always super hard pressed up against the cap. If they're putting a transition tag on a player, it's really easy for another team to sign them away because they can front load the heck out of the deal and make it near impossible for the for the Saints to sign him back on a transition tag because they'd have to rework almost everyone's contract in order to make that work, uh, which obviously isn't going to work out for a variety of different reasons. So a transition tag doesn't always work in that situation, but I think if you would put some language in it so that you can only front load it or back load it by a certain amount, you can only increase or decrease by maybe 5%. So you can still give them, you know, 20 million this year, but then you can only go up 5% from there each year thereafter or down 5% therein each each year after, kind of similar to what the NBA does a little bit with, uh, with their bird rights and things of that nature. I think that that could potentially work so that the, the player is still getting the best deal that they possibly can, but it protects the franchise and allows them to keep that player. It gives them right of first refusal. And if they don't want to keep the player at that price, then the player is allowed to leave. So I think that makes a ton of sense. Give give the team two transition tags each year. The player can still find the best deal for the most amount of years possible. And the, the team that has that player's rights still gets to hold on to them if they want to match that deal. So that's what I would do because I, ju- I just think the franchise tag as a whole is a, a much bigger benefit to the teams than it is to the players. Couple left. I think they should reseed the playoff teams. I like 12 teams. I would keep it the way it is. If they want to go to 14, I don't have a huge issue with it, but I kind of like it being at 12. But uh, they shouldn't have eight and eight or nine and seven teams hosting, uh, you know, 11 and five or 12 and four teams. I like the system for how they keep, you know, have the six teams that get in right now. If you win your division, I think you should get in the playoffs. 
If you want to argue against that, I, I don't have a huge issue. I think at, at most, maybe you should put in a limit that if you're not at least eight and eight, you you know you can't get in. If you're seven, eight and one, or seven and nine, and you win your division, I'm sorry, but if you're not eight and eight, you don't get in the playoffs. I think maybe they could do something like that, but um, I, I think the the twelve teams and the way they get in the playoffs is good. But reseed them, you know, put them one through six in order of record, and if that means that a team that wins their division is the six seed and has to go on the road to a wild card team, so be it. I don't think you should get the advantage because you are in a weaker division. And then last but not least, I don't know that this also is a collective bargaining agreement, maybe more of a, uh, a competitive uh, you know, rules uh, committee issue, but I would get rid of division games week one. And I just think this is a simple solution. Division games count the most of any games as we just talked about. You know, if you win your division, you get in the playoffs. You have two, you know, two division games against each team, six division games total each year. Those are the most important games. Interconference games, AFC versus NFC, are the least important when it comes to playoff seeding and everything of that nature. So ideally, I would like to see AFC versus NFC week one every year. Um, and I would like to see no division games in week one or week two. The reason for that is I don't think any team is really themselves in the first two weeks of the season. I think it takes time to develop your identity and be the you know kind of team that you are and really get into a rhythm. And I just don't like you know division games being played in those first two weeks of the season. Not a huge issue, you know, certainly not uh, one that's worth uh, holding out over. But that's one change that I would like to be. Uh, like to see done as well. So that does it. Uh, Those are my ideal CBA scenarios going into this season. Don't have anything else. I think that would be just about as good as it possibly gets. I love the idea of the 17 game season. I love increased rosters. I think there's a lot of good stuff that they can do with that. I love getting rid of the franchise tag. I think it it kind of makes things better for the players overall. So those are some of my key takeaways and my key uh, points within the the CBA coming up, but it's definitely going to be something that's worth keeping an eye on. I think more than anything, uh, let's just get this thing done. Let's make it so that there's no lockout, no holdout. And the sooner they can get it done, the better. Before I let you go today, I wanted to give a huge shout out to some of our patrons who are supporting us here at Pack-A-Day. Stephen Miller, Eric Rose, Gabriel Allen, Eli Berkovitz, and Brian Nelson have signed up to donate to us monthly. I cannot thank the five of you enough. If this is something that you're interested in, if you want to become a monthly subscriber to the Pack-A-Day podcast and you want to support our team, please go out to our Twitter page. The link in our bio allows you to become a monthly subscriber and you can sign up there. Uh, You can give as little as 99 cents a month. Anything helps us. If you can't help us financially, please like, follow, subscribe, comment, give us that five-star rating on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're listening to your podcasts. If nothing else, Please go tell a friend about us and let them know to listen to the Pack-A-Day podcast. Post it on Twitter, post it on Facebook. These things only take a couple seconds, but they help us out a ton, and we really, really appreciate it. That does it for me. Make sure to check in tomorrow with Jake and Ross as they break down the Packers' safeties. Go out to the Ticket King. Make sure to get your tickets, theticketking.com, promo code Pack-A-Day. But until next time, and as always, go Pack Go!
Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.